Amen. Thanks, guys. Great thought. Great job. Go ahead. Get in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 515, Isaiah chapter 1. Last week we finished a 21-message series studying the character attributes of God to learn just how God has revealed himself to mankind so we could stop committing idolatry by making a God that we like instead of accepting God as he has revealed himself to be. We rejoiced last week in the immutability of our creator. And because God never changes, every promise he made, every warning he gave us is just as valid today as the day when holy men of God of old wrote and spoke the words of God. This morning, we are beginning a new Sunday morning series together. It's a bit longer and more disjointed than most of our Sunday morning series. It's actually a series on great texts, and I plan, Lord willing anyway, over the course of the next three years to alternate between great texts in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the Gospel of John. And by great texts, I mean Bible texts whose truth has special impact on you and I today for one reason or another. I hope you understand that everything that God chose to inspire and preserve in his precious words is important. Every word matters. But it's not obvious to us always today why God chose to say the things he said and record the stories he recorded as opposed to other things. I mean, there are a lot of things in your and my thinking we would have put in there that God didn't bother much with. For instance, there's about 50 chapters about the Jewish tabernacle, describing the furniture, the curtains, the offerings, and everything that went on there. And in contrast to 50 chapters on the Jewish tabernacle, uh, all the hundreds of thousands of galaxies that have hundreds of millions of stars each in them, here's what God told us about that. He made the stars also. God does not look at things like you and I look at things, and it's certainly fair to say that God looks at the tabernacle, which in each paint of a stroke of the brush of the Old Testament, God is painting a picture of Jesus in some manner, and God looks at that much more important than you and I understanding how God created all the solar systems and planets and stars and galaxies. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And while all the Bible is there on purpose, there are mountain peaks that rise above the high elevated plane of the Scriptures. Mountains in the Scripture where the truth is especially clear, especially important, and especially applicable to you and I today, living about 1,900 years after the Apostle John laid down his quill. And it is to those mountains that you and I will flee in Sunday mornings God willing, for quite some time. I have 70 texts from Isaiah and Jeremiah picked and 70 from the Gospel of John. And unless God changes my heart or takes me out of here or we're raptured, uh, that's the game plan. So why would you do that? Uh, I really became burdened over the course of months that most of you will never read the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah. 
and I really was burdened that you would at least have some kind of a flavor of what is contained in those Old Testament books because, quite frankly, if you're not at all familiar with Old Testament history, uh, those books, are they're difficult. But I do want you to understand that God has a lot to say in them that makes a big difference. Uh, Isaiah had a long ministry. Uh, he preached during the reign of four different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He faithfully stood for God and preached the word of God during the reign of faithful kings like Hezekiah. He faithfully stood for God and preached the word of God in the reign of bad kings like Ahaz. In fact, according to tradition, uh, he was actually sawn in half by the fifth king, the bad king, who was the son of Hezekiah. And many people, and I'm one of them, believe that in Hebrews 11:17, when it speaks about those in the faith who had been sawn asunder, that that's actually a reference to Isaiah. Among other things, the book Isaiah has some of the clearest and most powerful prophecies of the coming Messiah. He lived and wrote about 700 years before Jesus was born. I'm told in the Old Testament there are over 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, understand how different that is over the course of hundreds of years when we consider the fact that there are zero prophecies about the coming of Confucius, zero prophecies about the coming of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, and zero prophecies about the coming of Muhammad, and over 300 about Jesus of Nazareth. And many of those 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth are written in the book of Isaiah. His virgin birth in Isaiah 7, his coming kingdom in Isaiah 11, his sacrificial death in Isaiah 53, and many, many more things. I'm told that the book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament somewhere between 55 and 66 times. You say, well, why can't you give us a, de uh, a definite number? Because what does it mean to be a direct quote? If one article is changed, is it a direct quote? And so between 55 and 66 times, the book of Isaiah is directly quoted in the New Testament. And there are many, many more times when the book of Isaiah is not quoted, but something written there is referred to or alluded to in some way. In fact, the book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any Old Testament book than the book of Psalms. Sounds to me like this ought to be a book that gathers some interest among us. And it's no surprise to anyone familiar with the Bible that there are many mountain peaks in the inspired words of God that are preserved in the book of Isaiah. Places where the truth is especially clear, especially important, and especially applicable to us today, living about 1,900 years after the New Testament was finished and about 2,700 years after Isaiah wrote his book. Some of these mountain peaks are important for theological reasons. Others of them are important for historical reasons. Some of them are special because of practical reasons. And the mountain we flee to this morning is a, one of those texts that is important because it's very applicable to us today for practical reasons. In fact, it's very practical. Mankind, it seems to be 
incurably religious. Wherever we have found people groups over the course of centuries when we were still discovering people groups, they always had a religion. They never discovered a people group who were atheists. Because the Bible quite clearly says it's foolish to say there is no God. And though man is incurably religious, man would much rather go through the external motions of religion rather than honestly consider his own heart. And shocking as it may be to some of you here, it is not just that worship becomes vain and formal and external only in other places. Sometimes, and probably here this morning, there are some who are here and you're just going through the motions of religion. And you're not investing your heart. If you're able to stand, if you would stand this morning, please, in honor of the Word of God. The title of my thought this morning is From Heartless Religion to Forgiveness. From Heartless Religion to Forgiveness. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11, we read these words, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. That means I can't endure it. I can't put up with it. I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I'm weary to bear them. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Thank you, might be seated. See, the context of Isaiah chapter 1 is the fact that the nation as a whole was living in rebellion against God. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. It was not a time of spiritual revival. It was not a time when the people of God were excited about the things of God. It was not a time when they were living out their faith. It's kind of interesting in this time of what people would describe as cultural deterioration and sins in their nation that God puts his finger first on what they would have considered to be their strength. And though the nation was living sinfully and corrupt lives, they did keep up their rit religious rituals. They would have thought, well, you know what, our nation, we've got some problems, but at least we're going to the temple. 
We've got some issues, but we're still offering our sacrifices. That would have thought, they would have thought, hey, this is our strength. But God begins by dealing with them in the area they thought they uh, were strong in. And understand, as we begin to think about this, that the religion of the Jews wasn't just any old religion. Judaism had been established by Jehovah himself at Mount Sinai after he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And here, many hundreds of years later, in verse 11, we read they were still going to the temple, offering sacrifices of bulls and lambs and goats. And verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Not only were they still offering sacrifices, they were still showing up at the temple whenever they were supposed to be there. Notice as verse 13 begins, it says, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. They're still assembling. God couldn't away with it. That's what he said. I cannot away with. It's iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. He calls their solemn meetings, their assemblies, he calls them iniquity. Though they thought that their religious habits excused what they were doing away from the temple and excused the complacent attitude they have when they assembled, God was looking at their heart. See, man has always considered his religion, what was going on outside, to be enough to appease God because man has a guilty conscience. God designed man with a conscience. Human beings begin until they sear it with a conscience that bears witness to the basic moral commandments of God. And because of that, man has always known that he's guilty and has always done something to try to appease his creator. And that something is usually religion and ritual. Man is not generally interested in truth or where his heart is. And God is going to use some very strong language to describe what he thinks about the way they practice Judaism in verse 14. Your new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hateth. Let that sink in. For those of you who have created a God of your own imagination, it might shock you to know that there's some things God hates. My soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. So, you know, God had established a special assembly with the lunar cycle. And every time there was a new moon, the Jews offered a special sacrifice and they assembled if you were near the temple. And three times a year there were special feasts where all the males were commanded to come. And by the way, a lot of times they brought their families with them uh, as well. The males were commanded to come. The feast of the Passover, the feast of weeks, and the feast of trumpets, they were commanded to come. And the Jews at this time, though their nation was corrupt and God was not happy, understand they were still showing up when they were supposed to show up. But God hated what they were doing. And he was just putting up with the way they served him and lived their life. They were in the right place. They were doing the right things in that place. But their heart 
or somewhere else. In fact, God had even gotten to the point where he was not going to hear their prayers anymore. And that's what he says in verse 15. And when you spread forth your hands, I'll hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Wow. Your hands are full of blood. A hands full of blood is an expression of the lack of justice in their culture. It is an expression of failing to value human life. It is a reflection of the fact that those who had strength and authority were not using that strength and authority to protect and value life. They were using it differently, and God hated that. Uh, by the way, as a Christian, you and I have a responsibility to value human life from the womb to the tomb. I, there are some wolves in sheep's clothing that you hear on the television. Some pastor, a so-called pastor in Columbus, said, well, I've counseled all kinds of people, and I think you should vote yes on issue one. Yes, sir, so you should be able to kill babies all the way to the 40th week? Amen. I saw another one the other day. Some guy, I was raised in a church that said abortion is wrong, but that's just, they're just going too far. So you prefer to be able to kill them to the 40th week? So you can kill them at 39 weeks and six days, and they can pass through the birth canal, and then it's murder? Sir, you're a devil in a sheep's clothing. That blood in their hands. They practiced their religion. They went on the Sabbath day like God had ordained. God set one day aside each week where they were supposed to rest from their normal labors and they were supposed to honor God in a special way. They're still doing all that. But when they left there, it, did not be, it was not reflected in their life. Fortunately, even though God was at the end of his rope with Israel's sinful behavior, heartless religion, and selfish way of handling other people, God calls them to repentance, and he invites them to come to him. Notice they were some things to come to him that they needed to quit. Verse 16, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. I hope you understand in the Bible there are two kinds of commandments. There's a kind of commandment where God says, don't do this. It's a negative commandment. And there's a kind of commandment that's a positive commandment. God says, do this. And this particular uh, rebuke here has to do with the fact that there were things that God said, I don't want you to do these, but you are doing them. And remember, God's the one that said, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. He's the one that said, thou shalt not kill. He's the one that said, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's the one that said, thou shalt not steal. He's the one that said, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. He's the one that said, thou shalt not covet. Listen, God had some things. Hey, don't do those things. And they were doing them. God says, stop that. But it wasn't just that God wanted them to move from stopping doing the things that he said don't do to this middle ground where most Christian people live, where they've stopped doing the bad things, but they really haven't started doing the positive things. God also, he wants them to move from the middle to the positive side. He says, listen, stop that stuff, and I want you to start these other things and that's what he does in the next verse, in verse 16, or 17. He says, learn to do well. 
Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Please plead for the widow. Those are, all, those are all positive commands. He says, stop doing the things I said don't do. Move out of this middle ground and do these things that I said you should do as my representative there on planet Earth. God then, he invites them to come to him. To reason with him about the situation. And by the way, this is one of the great texts of the Bible. If you're ever looking for a memory verse, you ought to highlight this in your Bible. If you memorize the Bible, you keep a list of them, uh, verses to memorize, this ought to be on your list. It's a mountain peak. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. <laughs> Notice this was an immediate invitation. Come now. He was inviting them to come to him before judgment fully fell on them, and it would be too late to call upon the Lord. You know, some people mistakenly think you can turn to God anytime you want. Hey, listen, no one can turn to God <laughs> unless God is first calling you and inviting you to come to him. It is always a big deal to reject God's invitation to you. And this was an invitation to reason together with God, to reason together with God, to be able to find forgiveness, to have their sins washed and become white as snow instead of red like scarlet or crimson. And though God has always required faith to please him, Faith has always been a reasonable and a reasoned faith. There was a good reason God was angry at his people. He'd done a lot for them in history, and he was doing a lot for them then. Uh, you know what? He had made his commandments clear to them. It was reasonable for them to obey God. There's a good reason that God couldn't just accept them in their sinful condition. I mean, God had revealed himself to be holy and righteous and just, and he couldn't remain just and just overlook their sins. It was reasonable for God to expect them to come to him for forgiveness. There's a good reason God could make the offer to cleanse their sins and make them white as snow instead of scarlet. You see, in eternity past, long before in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, God had a plan in eternity that His only begotten Son would die on a cross on a skull-shaped hill outside the city of Jerusalem for all the sins of mankind. And all the, from the very beginning when God shed the first blood of that animal to cover Adam and Eve's sins and Abel's lamb and Abraham and Noah and Jacob and Isaac, all those blood sacrifices, they all pictured what Jesus would do. There was a good reason God could invite them to come to him for forgiveness and them expect to be able to get it. By the way, I'm glad God was giving them another chance. There would come a day when his long suffering would run out and their city uh, he would allow to be overrun by the Babylonians and literally hundreds of thousands of them would die. But that day had not yet arrived. I hope you understand today that the situation in Judah, 
uh, southern kingdom of the nation of Israel is a mirror image of what's going on in America today. The vast majority of Americans are living prideful, selfish, and immoral lives even though they know in their heart that those things are wrong. Americans who have any Christian roots at all, at least the vast majority of them, are somewhere today just going through the motions of their own version of Christianity. And basically, they walk away from whatever their version of external Christianity is to live on Monday through Saturday completely different than what they seem to be on Sunday. Unchanged and unsanctified. You know, this morning, you and I can learn from what happened to Judah because they refused to repent, or you and I can suffer the same fate ourselves. The immutable creator who opened the door to the people of Judah to come to him has an open door to us today. If you're here and you paid any attention in your history class, uh, you know that Aaron Burr was the vice president under President Thomas Jefferson, so he's the third vice president. And because Aaron Burr believed that Alexander Hamilton had cost him the election with Thomas Jefferson in the House of Representatives and Later, a political post as the governor of New York, he challenged Alexander Hamilton to a duel, and Aaron Burr fatally shot Alexander Hamilton. Most people are familiar with that. What many people don't know is that Aaron Burr was the great, or I'm sorry, was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. If you had an English literature class, one of the things they would have made you read is that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was the preacher who preached that, and thousands were converted under his ministry. And at a time when Aaron Burr was at the College of New Jersey, that was what Princeton University was previously called, uh, his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards, preached a series of revival meetings there, and Aaron Burr come under great conviction to be saved. But instead of going forward, he went to the room of one of his professors who talked him out of making a decision for Christ until after the meetings were over and his emotions had settled down and Aaron Burr never made a decision when the meetings were over. I'm told that when Aaron Burr was an old man, some young man came to him to talk to him about Jesus. And when this young man talked to Aaron Burr about Jesus, allegedly he broke out into a cold sweat and he said these words. Sixty years ago, I told God if he would let me alone, I would let him alone, and he's kept his word. What a tragedy to have rejected and walked away from the invitation of our Creator to come to Christ. Sadly, it seems like Judah walked away from this invitation to come to God, and I hope this morning that you will not walk away if our Creator is calling you in some way by His Spirit to come to Christ. Keep your hand there in Isaiah. Uh, I'd like to make some observations and applications of these texts. And please first go in your Bible to Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy is, uh, 
I believe it's, if I'm getting the number right, I should have checked this, but I think it's Moses' last three sermons. Is that right? And, uh, and so before Moses goes on to paradise, God has him warn the people that he had delivered or God had delivered through him and that he had pastored and led now for 40 years. Well, you're teaching the class of major prophets right now. You better know it. I'm just going off my memory, which is shady. And so in God's final warning to Israel through Moses, remember, when we read all through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we get bogged down in those 613 commandments and all of the things that God wanted to be a part of Judaism and Moses is going to give them a very specific warning. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 26. He says, This day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Here's number one. God takes seriously going through the motions of true religion without heart. Listen, there have always been many false religions, many ways that both man and devil have invented to worship God that are false. Judaism was not like that. It was started by God through Moses. God himself established the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. God himself said, show up at the new moons. God himself established the Sabbath. God himself, did, he did all of that. And though God established all of those things, understand he has always condemned the way his people do those when they don't do them with their heart. We saw in Isaiah how God described their religious service as being iniquity, and he said he hated what they were doing. We saw in Isaiah how God couldn't endure the heartless way they served him and lived when they left his temple. And here, God makes clear to us that he wanted his things done with all our heart, with all our soul. Let me ask you, how did you come this morning? Did you come with all your heart? Did you come with all your soul? Listen, it wasn't okay to go through the motions of Old Testament law without heart. Certainly it is not okay to go through the motions of biblical Christianity today without heart. Hey, listen, you and I today are privileged to live in the full light of the life and sacrifice and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We're privileged to live in the full spotlight of the completed New Testament, the ministry of the apostles. We're privileged to live in the full light of 2,000 years of what biblical Christianity has been and what formal man-made Christianity has been. We're living in that full light. If those people in that day were not supposed to just come and go through the motions, how much more you and I today with the Spirit of God living inside us with the full light of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to not be here this morning going through through our motions. It's not okay to go through the motions of singing half-heartedly. It's not okay to be thinking about lunch when we pray. 
It's not okay to be planning out your week and anxious for me to finish. Though I don't blame you for being anxious for me to finish. I believe it grieves God that some of his people are more excited about their sports teams than their salvation. Listen, I'm not against sports or being a sports fan. I'm, I'm for both. But I think there's something wrong with being more excited about our sports teams and sports than our Savior. I believe it grieves God that some of his people are more upset their kid didn't get a part in the Christmas play than they're bothered by their child loving the Bible and reading the Bible and praying that week. I believe it grieves God that some of his people are more concerned about who's not here today and what's going on in some church up the street than you are about what your own heart is like this morning. Hey, listen. Anybody who has been saved for any length of time and been in a biblical church for any length of time understands how easy it is for our heart to slowly grow cold. Listen, our fallen nature is inclined to that. Our nature in this world resists us setting our affection on things that are above. Listen, the things we do at Bible Baptist Church when we assemble, they're all directly from the Bible. Did you do them this morning with your heart? Are you going through the motions of singing and praying and listening? In 1947, there was a Wall Street article. Uh, this was two years after World War II stopped, and I think we all understand that our country at that time had a lot more character and faith in general than we have today. And a writer in that time made this observation, and I quote, what America needs more than railway extension, western irrigation, a low tariff, a bigger cotton crop, and a larger wheat crop is a revival of religion, the kind that father and mother used to have a religion that counted it good business to take time for family worship each morning right in the middle of wheat harvest. But you know, this morning, I'm not concerned about what goes on up the street. I'm not concerned about revival in America. I'm concerned about our own passion. Do you live a passionate life for Christ? Listen, if you didn't come here with any passion this morning, I guarantee you, you didn't spend any time in prayer in the Bible this morning about what's going to happen. Did you pray this morning, God, I don't want to go through the motions of church today. God, I don't want to go through the motions of singing today. God, I don't want to go through the motions of prayer today. I want my heart to burn. What is the temperature of your spiritual heart this morning? Do you have this passion for God you once had? Listen, I'm glad you set your body in the Lord's church this morning. Most people choose to set their body in a place that's not going to challenge them spiritually. I really, I commend you for not doing that. Let me ask you, is your heart on what we're doing this morning? Would you allow the Spirit of God to inflame your heart for Christ in your ministry again? When was the last time you were excited about your ministry? Listen, I'm talking to Sunday school teachers and working, workers of all sorts, and you know good and well you don't have any passion for your class. 
There is something wrong when we go through the motions of what is right without heart. But it's not just that God takes seriously going through the motions of true religion without heart. Number two, God expects what believers do when we assemble to affect our life when we leave. (laughs) There's a churchless kind of Christianity that is increasingly common in America, but that has nothing to do with what Christ intended for his disciples. I get weary, and I've had hundreds of people say this to me, I'm spiritual but not religious. Listen, if you were actually spiritual, you would appear religious to everyone else. You cannot be a truly spiritual person without a commitment to one of the Lord's churches. So I don't agree with that. Bring your Bible after church. We'll chat. But I know this. You're not going to show up. Listen, Jews in Isaiah's day were practicing the religion God established. They looked fine when they assembled in the temple, but they lived differently elsewhere. Whether you and I like it or not, whether <laughs> if you are someone who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an example. You are either a good example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus or you are a bad example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you are an example. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's why Paul said to Timothy, be thou an example of the believers. Listen, our Creator never intended faith to be something we demonstrate in this building and ignore the rest of the time. Our faith needs to show up in our homes, with our spouses, with our children, with our families. It needs to be manifested in our workplaces and in our schools. And there's something wrong, hear me, there's something wrong when our attitude in the workplace and school is no different and no better than the attitude of those who don't know the Lord. Our world doesn't need more hypocrites. It does not need more complacent believers. What our world needs is passionate followers of Jesus. There are no perfect followers of Jesus, but there are passionate ones. Are you one? Do the people who know you best see any difference in you because of your faith? I'm glad you're here. Say, well, I'm here, but I ain't coming back. Listen, God wants your faith manifested away from here too. This morning, you need to begin to manifest your faith more consistently. Have you lost sight of the importance of your testimony? Is your Christian testimony away from here better than it was a year ago? Or is it worse? But it's not just that God expects what we do when we assemble as believers to affect what we do when we're away from here. Lastly, and you can go back to our text in Isaiah chapter 1. Here's number three, and and lastly, God invites people to come to him to fix things instead of just going on our merry way to judgment. We read that invitation from verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
Listen, God was fed up with his people at that time. If we were to study this, we would find from chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, they were already being disciplined. In fact, just turn back there. It's just right there in verse 7. God says, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. God says, listen, I've already tried to get your attention through some discipline. And now I'm inviting you to come to me and fix it. To reason together, to find forgiveness and cleansing. By the way, this invitation was for everybody. That invitation for, was for those who in that day had not yet trusted Jehovah for salvation. And basically, Isaiah is doing the same thing that Jesus did when he looked out over the crowd that day in Matthew 11, and he said to the crowd, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, understand God is inviting you to salvation. Your sins may be as scarlet, but with the blood of Jesus Christ, they can be white as snow. You and I don't get to choose, but the Bible is clear that every unbeliever and every liar will have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone unless they come to Christ for mercy and salvation. Do you need to do that? If you've never been saved, why, why wouldn't you humble yourself today? If there's any desire in your heart to repent and receive and believe the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a desire from God. He's calling you to come to him. Don't presume you'll have another chance. You might, you might not. Philosophy says think your way out. Indulgence says drink and smoke your way out. Politics say spend your way out. Science says invent your way out. Religion says work your way out. Jesus says I am the way out. He says I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But I want you to understand that this morning that invitation was not just to those Jews, those in Judah, who had not yet trusted Jehovah for salvation. They had not yet placed their faith in him. That invitation was also to those who had trusted him, but had allowed the true religion to become complacent for them. To those Jews who were going through the motions, they showed up in the Sabbath, they showed up at the new moon, they showed up at the feast, they offered their incense, they offered their oblations, they offered their sacrifices, but there was no heart. And God says to them, just like he says to every believer here, whose faith has come to formality, God says to you, come now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, if you're here this morning, you're saved. And you think it's just fine with God for you to park your carcass in a church and do what you want the rest of the week. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm doing the same thing Isaiah did. I can't forgive you. I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness. But I can invite you to go to the God who forgives. If you'd quietly stand this morning.